What's up, guys? Just a, a quick word before this podcast gets underway. I want to take the time to thank Rick Sessinghouse and Flowcode Golf for making this episode possible. Rick had some great stories and some great insights into the game of golf, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. With that being said, roll the intro. Oh, we shanked it. Oh, look at that line, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, boy, is he out of sync. That even sounded, it, it was a tenor sound, wasn't it, Peter? Oh, oh boy, he gets really leaning on it with the lower body. That hurt much right there. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to That One's OB. Daniel here alongside DJ. As always, DJ, how are we doing? We're doing fantastic. Special, special episode today, but I'm, I'm excited to be here. For sure. We do have a very, very special guest. Rick Sessinghouse is joining us on the podcast. Rick has been playing and teaching golf for over 20 years. He's played at both the collegiate and professional levels before turning his focus to coaching. He's the author of Golf, The Ultimate Mind Game, and is best known for coaching top 10 player in the world and two-time major champion Colin Morikawa. He's now broadened his scope as the director of Flowcode Golf and is providing expert insights into the mental aspects of golf. Rick, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. Looking forward to it. Yeah, of course. So obviously there's so many different directions we can go. There's so many questions we have for you, but we thought we'd start off with kind of how you got into golf yourself. Um, obviously you're played at some pretty high levels. So we'd love to just hear about how you got into golf, what your experiences early on were like and how that shaped your view of golf going forward. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it shaped when I started was when I was 12 years old. So nowadays that would be considered late in the game, mm -hmm. but I played five other sports before I ever played golf. So I did have a different perspective on golf than maybe other junior golfers did. And I honestly was not that good of a junior golfer, but uh, once I quit playing football in high school, I put all my emphasis into golf, just absolutely loved it. It was one of those, as we all know, you think it's an easy sport and then you play it and go, I can't believe how hard it is. And I think that's what sucked me in as an athlete. It's like, I, I can conquer this, I can master it. And of course, I still haven't mastered it. Um, <laughs> and, and what that led to was just this obsession. And so I got much better within about a two years uh, time when I was 17 to 19. Um, I walked on at Cal State Northridge, which is a division one school here in Los Angeles area. I was given that opportunity. Uh, I was a very average D1 player, a good ball striker, short game, not so good. Mental game was a little um, erratic to say the least. A little, I was a little more of a Hulk smash kind of guy on the golf course, a little frustrated sometimes. Cheers. Um, <laughs> exactly. We've all been there, right? And so I, I learned a lot in that time, of, and which surprised me. It's that it, it was much more than just beautiful golf swing or athleticism that was leading these tournaments or winning these college events. And that's when I started to turn a little bit more into the mental side, even reading books, or I actually hired a sports psychologist for a short time when I was a senior in, high, in college. So I was experiencing now, wait, there's got to be another kind of puzzle piece to this. And so after after that, it really played at, a, at just a very low level professional level and, you know, um, with some of the midi tours. And then I started coaching and I absolutely have loved it. So I've been coaching for 28 years now and started off as a swing and, and putting coach and all this typical stuff. Remember the PGA. Um and then uh, about 10 years in, I go, wow, there's got to be a different answer to this because my players, their golf swings look better, but they're really not performing much better than I thought, or their scores weren't much lower. And that's when I had to kind of look at my own coaching and say, hey, what am I, what am I missing? And 
as I tell everybody, my bias now is the mental game. I believe I was missing coaching the mental game. And so I went back to school. I got a doctorate in, in applied sports psychology. I, I wrote the book. And uh, the last 15 to 18 years has been a lot more of working with somebody on their mental side, uh, which we can get into obviously a, a little bit later. And that led to me getting to work with some really good players, some good juniors, some good college uh, players. And uh, I was fortunate enough that um, uh, now it's almost 18 years ago, uh, a gentleman and his child walked up to me on the, the far end of the range at Shoal Canyon Golf Course in Glendale. And uh, the, the, the father that said, hey, do you, I heard you work with competitive juniors. I would like you to work with my son. Could you? And he's eight years old at the time. And, and I said, well, let me see him hit. He hits. And yes, that was Colin Morikawa. And he had already done some group classes. So he had some great fundamentals already. Okay. Um, and, but what I really, really enjoyed uh, working with him at his younger age is he was extremely coachable. He loved the game. He had a smile on his face every single time we had a lesson. His father was at every single lesson, but in a good way. All you parents out there that are crazy. <laughs> Come on, support your kids and not get crazy about right. uh, yep. scoring yeah. and rankings and all that kind of stuff. Very supportive. Uh, I saw him once a week for 10 years until he went to college. I saw him every Tuesday afternoon. And most of those lessons were done on a golf course, uh, about 70% of them. We would actually go in a golf cart on the golf course, put him in different scenarios. And part of that was me as a mental game coach having somebody understand decision-making and course management and being able to commit to decisions. Um, and certainly we were working on mechanics, everybody. I mean, if, if he was hitting a poor shot from the rough, I would help him understand what's going to help him mechanically hit that shot too. But that was where my coaching philosophy really shifted is most of my lessons are done on the golf course. I want to see how people perform out there. The range. Yeah. Within three minutes, I can tell why you're hitting the ball where you're hitting it, but does that always translate over. So that would became my obsession. Um, and then especially the last four or five years, I've gone down even a bigger rabbit hole, which is called flow states, which we'll get into a little bit later, but it's gone from a player that was obsessed to a coach that's obsessed. And now somebody who's obsessed with the mental side of the game to help people play better, but also enjoy the game more. So that's a, that's my background. Right. So, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to, to work with you a little bit through high school and you were always talking about Colin at, at the time. I didn't know him by name, but you were always, <laughs> you were always saying, you know, I have this kid who's playing out at Cal right now who, you know, is, Oh, just won this, uh, you know, another tournament or something. And it seemed like you knew that he had that kind of it factor. So when did you kind of realize, oh, this kid's got kind of like, you know, what that kind of un untangible factor that might make him go really far in the game? Right. No. And, and you said the key thing is that it's it's sometimes not the obvious, right? It's not the obvious ball striker who when he's 14 years old hits a 320 and you go, wow, that's a special skill. What I saw at an early age, probably about 12, 13, was somebody who, back to the coachability, but somebody who never made excuses, somebody who was extremely passionate, very curious person. He's always wanting to know why and learning and learning. And that was different. Um, not, not every junior golfer takes accountability for their three putts. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to blame the, the, the bumpy greens or that person was making a noise, right? So that's what I saw from a mindset standpoint that I felt was way ahead of everybody else. Okay. Now the physical skills, yeah, he had a good solid swing, kept the ball in play, but you would never look at him like, oh my gosh, this guy's a world beater. Um, but as he gained, has he gained 
success as a 16, 17 year old more on the national stage. You could see that he had the parts of the game now, uh, but I always knew that he had that internal part that is, I think, I think the biggest game changer of them all. Right. Because obviously Daniel and I play in college as well. And so we see a bunch of good players play. And when you play in these tournaments, like everybody hits the ball good. Everyone's got a pretty good swing. Everyone can kind of get it around. It's really short game and how you handle yourself. And it seems like you were teaching him that young and early, which is obviously a big part of it. But it's just crazy because you see guys that they're super good at 14. Like you said, they hit at 320 and then they just kind of fizzle out a little bit. There's got to be some other piece there. When you get to a point where everybody hits the ball really good, everybody can kind of get it around. There's got to be some other piece that that's missing. And I, I'm, you know, obviously I think you found that with the mental aspect. So I think that's very, very interesting. And, and you talked a little bit also, you know, and not to like uh, discount this, but Colin obviously is an extremely good ball striker in and of itself and has a very, oh, very solid no fundamental question. swing. And was that something that you guys were developing from that young age or did he kind of always really kind of have a good feeling and understanding of how the swing worked and how, how to work yeah. the ball? Right. I, I think what's interesting with junior golf, I mean, I, I work with, players who come to me when they're 25, 26 years old, they're already fully physically developed. But you guys know this is an eight-year-old is going to swing different than a 12-year-old, than a 16-year-old, than a 20-year-old, just because physically they're different. They are taller, they're stronger, they're flexible. You know, And those are the challenging things, to be honest with you, to take somebody who 12-year-old may be like, already ahead two years to everybody else, and they, they're winning all their tournaments, and then everybody catches up physically. Okay. But when you're actually trying to work a golf swing and he's with me the entire time, I know some of those bumps in the road. I know that we have to make sure the clubs are continuing to be measured to make sure they fit for somebody and you're not compensating this way. Or are you strong enough to do the things we want in a golf swing? Juniors are highly hyper flexible, right? So they're very, very flexible, but they're not strong in their core. Those are the things that we looked at. But back to the original question, he had fundamentally always a sound swing. But because he's known for his fade, that fade wasn't produced until he was about 17, 18 years old because physically he wasn't strong enough in his le left glute muscle and to rotate to get the path going to the left a little bit more. A lot of juniors will side bend and slide, which now causes the club to come under plane and flip it. And we tend to see a lot more juniors draw the ball at early ages because that's just their default. So that's where it's interesting is that, yes, he had a fundamentally good swing. Did he have all the shots? Probably not yet until he was 17, 18, because he wasn't strong enough to do some of the things we wanted to do. Okay. Right. Um, and then you go up another level where he can learn how to flight balls when in the wind and stuff like that. That's the shot making part of it. But the physical part of a golf swing does require strength and balance and posture and those things that 12, 13, 14, we really don't have the same way. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, obviously, uh, everything that you've talked about is, has worked out very, very well. And uh, obviously now sitting here with Colin ranked as a top 10 player in the world and a two time major winner. Obviously, you've been here for all of that. And uh, I've got to assume you've had some pretty cool experiences with that. What what tops your list? Obviously, there's there's probably so many. But if you could give us a couple examples, what, what kind of yeah. tops your list of where you're you're sitting there and you're thinking like, man, this is this is awesome. Like just being able to be here. Yeah. So I, I would say that it would be the two majors, but for for completely different reasons, everybody. So his first win um 
major wise was the 2020 PGA championship during the COVID season, right? During the COVID year. So I am walking. uh, I did not see round three. That's a long story. We won't get into, but I was there for the prep and um, I was there for the final round. And what made it very eerie is that there was no gallery. So we are watching a major championship. I am outside the ropes. I don't know why they had ropes, but it was me his agent and his girlfriend. That was the gallery. Okay. And there was Sean Foley. He was following uh, Cameron champ, his player. Mm -hmm. And we're talking, it was like watching a member guest at your local country club. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's very weird that you go, it's a major championship. Right. And yet there's nobody here. There's no grand. Didn't really feel like one. I'm sure. Yeah. Right. It didn't yet. Then you saw it leaderboard and you saw, of course, other things around that, you know, okay, this is a professional major event. So what was cool about it is as he keeps going up the leaderboard um, and and the last back nine, one of my favorite stories that he said after the fact was uh, they asked him, hey, do you look at leaderboards? And he said, well, yeah, I do. And, and they said, well, what happened when you were looking at leaderboards on the, on, you know, on the final round? And he goes, well, I, I was on number 12 and uh, I saw my name on the leaderboard. And I was tied with six other players because it was a tight, packed leaderboard yeah. i mean there's yep. tony fee now cameron champ matthew wolf dj right and they asked him so you see that what do you, what do you how are you feeling he goes well i see my i'm tied for the lead somebody's got to win might as well be me now that's a mindset that went with that right now i don't know i'm guessing that's what he's thinking right but as he went along he chips in on number 14 um, he hit his only poor iron shot of the day and he chips in and I'm going nuts. Oh my God. I have it on camera. And afterwards I said, man, I hope I didn't bother you when I yelled. He goes, what? Yelled. I was 20 feet away from him. Okay. In the zone. So at that moment, like, cause it's not like a big roar. I'm the only one yelling. So you're no, you're going to hear it. Right. Yeah. And so I, after the, after the fact, um, you know, for him to do what he did on 16 with driving the green and making Eagle and I'm there with, you know, now we had volunteers that were starting to creep around, right. A little bit more people, uh, just to see that unbelievable. And then, you know, just afterwards, obviously he wins and you're holding a trophy and, um, and just so proud of him and just how he handled it. Um, that was of course the, the peak of it. Cause I was there. Right. Right. Um, and be able to see what, again, I'm biased to see what he did on 16 with the drivable par four. That's got to go down as one of the top shots in major history. Right. Yeah. Um, and be able to witness that. I was extremely, extremely, extremely grateful and fortunate for that. Right. Now you fast forward a year and the open championship is happening. Uh, the British open and because of COVID really weird rules with that, mm-hmm. Uh, we chose that I wasn't going to go. His agent wasn't going to go. There was just a lot of weird stuff behind it. Yet I remember talking to him the night before about, you know, what his goals were for the, before the last round. And he goes, it's to win, right? I mean, it, it's embracing that, right? And and to now see it, you know, uh, you know, we, on the West Coast, we're seeing it pretty early in the morning on TV and his agent's on one side of me, my, my son's on one side of me, my dad's there and watching and watching him just, just play just great golf and just making some saves here making some putts. And then of course, when in like, so now we're going nuts, but we're now so far away. And then you FaceTime him after. So those would be the two extremes that uh, were just, just unbelievable to be a part of. Right. And obviously, so you're talking about Harding park and, and the effects of kind of COVID. Do you think that that, 
played a factor. Obviously, you said he was very locked in, didn't even notice you uh, kind of cheering there. But do you think that played a factor at the time? Obviously, kind of one of his earlier major starts. Um, do you think that kind of maybe helped him and maybe even took away from some of those players who, like you were naming on that leaderboard, who kind of thrive on that feeding crowd feeling, on that star, quote-unquote star power? Or do you think that at that level, these guys are just so locked in that no matter what's going on around them, they're not really worried about it? I think when they're that locked in, it doesn't matter. But but how do you get locked in? Many may need some of that mm. energy to to thrive off of. I think what Colin has proved is that it doesn't matter what environment he's going to thrive in it. He would prefer to play in front of 50,000 people, by the way. Okay. He would prefer to hear those roars. He w- were at Augusta this past year and he was paired with Rory in the final group. I, th- it, I, I might be mistaken. I think Rory shuts. 64 he shot 66 the they whole both out made of the bunker, bunker on 18 shots on the, unbelievable God, right? that was so you unreal could see, you could see them feeding off of each right. other throughout yep. the round of golf the energy of the uh, so he prefers that over there's nobody watching right okay? yeah. but okay. i think the best of the best can figure out how to lock in no matter what's happening outside of them some people get don't want to be in front of a lot of people mm-hmm. don't want right. to be on the leaderboard right. and that then they falter but um not him so obviously we've talked a lot about the mental aspect of golf. You've been doing this for a while. I'm curious if there's anything, let's say over the past five, 10, 15 years in your philosophy that you've changed, you know, as you know, different things have happened, you've, your ideas adapt with time. I was wondering if there's any big change that's really happened or if it's just kind of been, it's the same old things that, you know, work time and time again. So I'm just kind of curious. I'm, I'm really, if anything's changed. That's a great, great, great question. Um, I'm going to answer it slightly different. Uh, I'm going to start with swing stuff first, even though I'm going to talk mental in a moment. When I first became a swing instructor, I thought more information was best. So um, I would learn from Mac O'Grady. I would learn from all these great teachers. And oh my gosh, I know every angle. And what's my right elbow? Right. Um, And this is well before TrackMan, everybody. So we had to look at angles and positions and stuff like that. And it did help me become a, a good coach. Don't get me wrong. But I was a, a very poor teacher at that time because I'm just giving information. Mm. Okay. So I, I look at that the same way in the mental game is when I got obsessed about the mental game, I'm reading all kinds of things. And when I wrote my first book, oh, I'm going to write a 400 page book. And I'm going, who the heck wants to read 400 pages on this? Right. <laughs> so I, I brought it down to simplicities. Mm. I brought it down to things that um, I, I know would be of benefit, but simple. How can I take a complex subject and make it simple has always been my goal as a coach. Now, has my philosophy changed a little bit? Um, I think I'm always about state management. What's the state somebody's in over a shot, mentally, emotionally, physically? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I doing? Um, I don't think that's changed much. I think how I'm helping people get there, I've added more tools in my toolbox. Um, the other thing I'm excited with of uh, what the future holds is how do we make the mental game tangible? How do we make it measurable, right? Up to this point, I have people you know, write out a, a worksheet. Hey, how focused were you? Well, Rick, I was an eight out of 10. I go, okay, I guess I got to take your word for it, right? <laughs> but, but in full swing, we have TrackMan, we have force plates, we have all these things that are going to measure those performances. Mental game, we're getting there. We are. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my company, FlowCode, and it'll be made public pretty soon is going to be working with a company called Focus Calm, which uh, has a basic EEG device that goes on your forehead to measure brainwave activity, um, how much effort is involved for you to focus. And it's actually just biofeedback, right? If I do a certain breathing rate, 
Does that change the score? Do I do it? And now we can quantify it. I believe in about two, three years, we're going to have a lot of virtual reality that we're going to be mm-hmm. training people under. And can I put you under stress, try different uh, modalities, breathing, visualization, so on and so forth, see what works in practice to be able to do that. That's what I'm excited about the future. Interesting. So I don't know if my philosophy has changed much. I think I'm going to have more tools at my disposal, uh, like heart rate variability monitors, those type of things, because I want to make sure it works. I don't want it to just be, yes, positive thinking, and that's what it's about. Uh, no, that's not what it is. Okay. Right. Um, but state management is, and I'm going to help somebody understand what uh, triggers their emotional state negatively, what could trigger it positively, how do they focus better. That's what I'm so passionate about. Well, you mentioned flow code there, and, and maybe this is the perfect little segue here. Um, I, obviously, this is something that you've been working on and developing for a long time, and, and it's almost seems like it's a little bit of just a passion project for you. You seem so invested into this and, and so dedicated to this. So talk to us a little bit about flow code. What, what is it in just in general and how did you come to develop this? Obviously you talked about your, your uh, partnership with focus calm, but where do you kind of stand right now as far as uh, everything with flow code? Great. Um, yeah, I think what, what, as I developed as a coach, I love coaching one-on-one, you know, that Daniel, I love working with somebody and, and help them achieve their goals Yet as a business person, I wanted to be able to leverage that. I wanted to be able to grow a business around it. And and one-on-one has its limitations. So doing group, doing, uh, I did a seminar the other night for 24 juniors, right? Now I can make an impact on 24 people at once instead of just one. Well, Flow Code started as an online platform, which it is, uh, membership site and flowcode.golf, everybody, flowcode.golf. <laughs> That'll be linked um, in, in the show notes that as well, We have everybody. a membership that sounds good. Sounds good. Um, is that, you know, being able to share some of these ideas with people in an online platform and a membership um, so they can, in a way, self-coach themselves, but I'm there for them and I do group uh, type stuff. And we're also certifying coaches um, who want to be mental game coaches and helping them create a business and create a, fo- a philosophy and give them tools and stuff. We have hundreds and hundreds of videos and worksheets and stuff in that platform. So, Flow code is about leveraging the information. Uh, it's about reaching as many people as possible and all kinds of different demographics. We just started a, a junior flow code golf Academy. So I'm very excited about that too. Um, and there's going to be more in-person stuff, but this idea that these skills are going to help somebody not only in golf, but in life. And that's really my, if you talk about my passion project, it's using golf as a metaphor for life. So how can we help people instead of being stressed all the time? Can we have them be more calmer and more focused and confident and those type of things. We know golf is one of the best ways to train it uh, because it can be the most frustrating. It can. Um, so that's really where flow code has come is we use golf. Now we have other um, goals down the road of being able to utilize it in other sports and incorporate and so on and so forth. Right. Interesting. Yep. That will be linked down below just for everybody to check out. I highly encourage everybody do so. And uh, even just going through the website, reading everything, there's so much helpful information there. You know, it's for literally golfers of every skill level. If you're trying to get better, there's no reason not to check it out. So Uh, it it seems like in the past, like five to 10 years, physical health and working out has become a big part of the game. And it's kind of taken over a lot and changed how people hit the ball. They're, thought process going into a course because they hit the ball a lot farther. It seems like with being able to quantify these 
mental thoughts that you were talking about with the with your company and everything it seems like do you think that's going to be the new wave in next five to ten years going to be a main focus like working out has become yeah no i i and again i'm 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 biased so i'm going to say yes to that but i think but i think what has changed honestly is that when i was a coach uh i think tpi titles performance institute came out around to 2004 ish 2005 right and so as a coach back then, I got certified as a, as a fitness expert, right? And all that kind of stuff. And they did a wonderful job of making uh, the physical part of the performance something you could train, get assessed on fairly quickly, so on and so forth, right? And so now that's become second nature. If you get a good player, hey, have you been assessed by a TPI person? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what my limitations are. I think that is where the next thing of golf performance is, is that mentally – I think we have myself, we have some, some other great coaches out there that are, are, are helping people with the mental game. But once we can quantify it, assess it, um, and people have a, a plan, we call it a flow code. What is your code to get into a flow state? When people be, can train it and be more interactive with it, uh, and then of course they're going to see good results, then we have the buy-in. So I do believe that's kind of that next step. I mean, golf swing-wise, the amount of information we have about a golf swing now is through the roof, right? Too much almost. I can get somebody on a force plate, gear, gears. We have all this capture, all the kind of stuff. So biomechanically, we know what you should do. I get it. But does that always lead to better performance? Um, I don't always think so. So that's me. (laughs) So, I mean, you kind of just partially answered this question, but as far as the golf swing goes and and how you're working with Colin and, and applying whether yeah. it's the actual golf swing or the mental side of it, what is a typical lesson or what is what is a typical week or or um process with Colin look like? Is it more just focused on mental side? Is it looking into the swing as well? Is it just kind of a overall macro view of how you're feeling overall going into a week? What does that kind of entail? Yeah, I think it does start with macro and then we and then we drill down, right? So it, it could be if it's a week of a tournament and I'm on site on a Monday, let's say Monday afternoon, um, I'm certainly going to check in with him. He's the great player. I'm going to honor whatever he says to me, right? Um, and if he says, hey, Rick, my ball flight, I wanted it to cut 10 feet. It's it's staying straight and it's not cutting. We may look at the the physical mechanics, certainly. We may look at, hey, the club face is not open enough. We may, we maybe the path's not enough left to get the ball moving to the right. So there is the part of me that puts the swing coach hat on to look at cause and effect. Golf is a cause and effect sport, everybody. The ball goes where the club face tells it to go. But is him, in this case, not being able to fade the ball have anything to do with mental? Could be. There, there could be trying too hard. It could be stress. It could be, I'm in between clubs. I mean, there, there's a lot. Now with him, it's usually not that, okay? But we would look at all these layers and we're looking also at him preparing for that tournament week. What is that golf course? Is there any different challenges? What are the grasses? Is the type Bermuda versus this? And and now you're getting into, do you need different wedge work? Do you need different? So that's what's fun for me is you, on a week of a tournament, you're preparing to be at your best on Thursday. Monday, Tuesday, we honestly are not doing a lot of swing stuff. Um, we hope not. There's been yeah, a couple times. I guess times it's usually not a good thing a if you're doing swing stuff right before a tournament. 
Usually not. Usually not. And we know Wednesdays are usually um, pro-am days, certainly on major weeks. You don't have a pro-am, but you, it, it's a it's a it's a lighter day overall yeah. uh, for sure. Um, when it's off site and I'm, I'm, I go to where he lives in Vegas or maybe he comes to L.A., that's when we can experiment a little bit more. That's when we can go into maybe some more deeper details where him playing tomorrow uh, in a tournament is not going to happen. So it's okay for him to think a little bit more and think because we do want to reduce thinking, right? We want to be able to trust ourselves in the moment to execute it. So I think week to week at a tournament site, you're preparing for a strategy for Thursday. We would want to minimize swing thoughts. Um, but if it's like my ball's doing this, we need to reduce that. Okay. Yes. We're going to look at video. We're going to look at TrackMan numbers, of course. But I think overall, we're looking at, hey, what's your confidence level? What do we need to focus on? And those types. And we start drilling down more and more. He's got a great caddy to help create strategies and, and stuff like that. So it's, it depends on, on week to week. But we go with big picture. I trust what his instincts are. If he says, hey, I'm swinging great, great. I don't even maybe put a swing on video. But yeah, if it's, hey, right. I'm overcutting it or something like that, then we can look at it from a physical standpoint first and then mental. Right. I remember there was one time this season, I forget exactly what tournament it was. I think it was a big one, but I remember seeing that like Colin couldn't hit a cut and he was just hitting a draw like going into the week. And then he got like a top five or almost won it or something silly like yeah. that. I don't know if you remember what I'm talking about. But oh, I just I, oh, I, oh, I remember. I remember. <laughs> um, I uh, I was getting calls from Golf Channel that week and hey, why is he can't hit a cut and all yeah. this stuff. So uh, I'm going to answer it very quickly. Okay. but. I was the, it was the U.S. Open at Brookline, right? Um, and he was the first round leader. Shot sixty six in the first round. He shot sixty six, or was it the second round? I'm sorry. Uh, he was he was tied for first after two rounds. Okay, and then he did shoot a sixty six in his final round to be uh, top five. That's a pretty good tournament, right? But it's not exactly how he wanted to execute his golf shots. Um, he was having a challenge of cutting the ball. It was going very very straight. Um, I, I guess know. you could call it a draw because I hate that it went three God. inches left. Okay, <laughs> uh, exactly right. So part of it was is that he it, it wasn't that he was hitting poor golf shots. Anybody target lines. Mm. If you think you're going to cut a ball, you pick a different target line than if you think you're going to hit it straight. That was more of the struggle. Quality of contact was great. Okay, now what we have found, and he has since said it in some of the uh, interviews in the last. Uh, uh, months afterwards is that sometimes his body wasn't responding how we wanted to. There was a, t a touch of a tightness on his left side and he wasn't getting through the ball. So that was a little bit of a physical thing that caused it not to cut. Okay. So we're always looking at that. Now we didn't catch it in time. Okay. And I take responsibility as being the coach, but it does show that even if you're not at your best, you can still contend for a major championship. That's pretty dang good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think we're sitting here thinking, man, he's hitting a straight ball. Oh, that's oh <laughs> if only that was my miss. Yeah. Um, but if so you're used to the last six years seeing a ball fade eight yards to the right or six yeah. feet to the right with an iron, you, sure. you do start to to change target lines, and there becomes a little bit of confusion up there. Right, for sure. So, kind of transitioning away, and maybe into just kind of some miscellaneous questions here. So you've obviously, you know, said you were able to to travel and be at Harding Park and obviously have probably done a, a fair amount of traveling since then. What yes. in, in in 
your golf experience, what has been the coolest place that you've been able to visit? Well, um, I would say the coolest place was this past summer at uh, the the 2022 Open Championship at St. Yeah. Andrews, yeah. <laughs> uh, being that it was the 150th anniversary and that Colin was the defending champion. There was a lot of pretty cool stuff going on yeah. at that time. Um, so that being the, the the history of golf and everything like that, that was pretty special. Um, I think the first time I was at, at, at Augusta, um, and going, I wasn't in the clubhouse. I wasn't allowed in the clubhouse, but you go in between and you go from the clubhouse out to the area and you just see the massive property that was like, Holy smokes, look at this place. Um, and it was my first time ever being there. So that was really neat. And then the other one uh, that comes to mind was Colin's first U S open that he qualified for, which was the 2019 at Pebble beach. And so now you're at Pebble it's, he's just turned pro um, and you're playing the U S open there. I mean, that was, yeah, that was pretty special. Yeah. So, so obviously you just named off a bunch of amazing places you've just been. Where is one place that you haven't gone? That's on your bucket list that you really want to go to if there's any, Oh no, 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 no. There, there, there's plenty. <laughs> there's plenty. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I, I fell in love with the courses in, um, in Scotland. Uh, I think when they have it at Carnoustie or something like that, I, I think that's going to be pretty cool. Um, I just came back from Australia giving some presentations and being at Royal Melbourne and stuff like that. There's a lot of these, these historic places. Um, I've never been to Pine Valley. I've never, I mean, there, there's some pretty neat, but from a, a, a tournament standpoint, like I'm really looking forward to the U S open 2023 LA country club, right in my backyard. Yeah, right. Yep, yep. Um, and Colin played the Walker cup there and in, in 2017, um, yeah, I think it's more of the experiences, like being at the Ryder Cup, the experience. I mean, Whistling Straits is a great golf course, but the experience of a Ryder Cup, right? Uh, that is is very, very special. So I, I like the experiences maybe more than just the course. Right. Cool. Well, we'll, uh, we'll end it off with one final question here, which we have dubbed in our notes as the impossible question. So you can answer this however you please or refuse <laughs> to answer this. Uh, but the impossible question, if you had one piece of advice that would apply to the majority or all golfers out there listening who have stuck around to the end of this podcast to improve their game, what advice would you give them? Low follows focus. Your ability to focus on the present moment is a superpower. There you go. Short and simple. Love it. There you go. Making the complex simple. There you go. That is floating. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, Rick, thank you so much <laughs> for joining awesome. us. Thank you. you know, th- this is something that we're going to have to go through My and pleasure. listen to a couple more times just because there's so much good information in here. But we really appreciate you being here and taking the time for for this. It was obviously something super special to us. So thanks for the opportunity, guys. Now I can be on TikTok, huh? Perfect. Right, there, there we go. go. There you go. <laughs> awesome. All right. All we'll right. see you guys next time. Thanks, Rick. Oh, we shanked it. Oh, look at that line, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, boy, is he out of sync. That even sounded, it, it was a tenor sound, wasn't it, Peter? Oh. oh, boy, he gets really leaning on it with the lower body. Oh, that hurt. Wow. Right there.